Hi, this is Tom Colicchio of Kraft and Top Chef, and you're listening to Food Fridays on the Leonard Lopez Show on WNYC 93.9 FM, AM 820, and WNYC.org. Centuries before the restaurant became a dining destination, a restaurant was a medicinal broth in pre-revolutionary France, a bouillon that contained ingredients like capon, gold ducats, rubies, and other precious gems. So how did restaurants become what they are today? And when did eating in restaurants become such an enjoyable activity and even a serious pastime? Rebecca Spang, author of The Invention of the Restaurant, Paris and Modern Gastronomic Cuisine, joins us for today's Please Explain, all about the history of restaurants. Dr. Spang is a professor of history, director of the Liberal Arts and Management Program, and director of the Center for 18th Century Studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. The Invention of the Restaurant is published by Harvard University Press, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to our show, Dr. Spang. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited to talk to you about restaurants, and I also invite listeners to join the conversation. You can call in with questions about restaurants at 212-433-9692. So tell us, what was a restaurant in 15th century France? Okay, so in 15th or 16th century France, a restaurant is the name for a sort of broth or bouillon that's very, very, very condensed. It has very little liquid in it. You sweat the juices out of the meat, and it was assumed that it would have especially restorative properties. So that's where the word restaurant comes from. Restaurant. Restaurant, right? It means to restore, to refresh. So it's actually going to restore your health. So a restaurant is a kind of bouillon that you eat if you're, uh, well, very wealthy and (laughs) under the weather. Now, so some of these early recipes had gold in them. They had gems in them. Why were they there? And did people actually eat them or were they just simmered and then left in the pot? Well, it is one of the great uh, conundrums of food history that the best, some of the best evidence we have are recipes. And, of course, even today, how many people actually cook following the recipe perfectly? Huh, right. So we don't know, right? You know, the recipe says, you know, uh, put in a bay leaf. Will future generations think that people actually swallowed bay leaves? Interesting. Um, So it's always hard when recipes are one of your main sources of evidence. But we certainly do know from other sorts of texts um, that minerals were assumed to have, as some people would say today, um, medicinal properties. Now, were these broths unique to France or were they made elsewhere in Europe? Now, that's a really good question. Um, I suspect it's actually a fairly widespread part of early modern elite food culture, but the emergence of establishments specializing in serving them is certainly a distinctly French phenomenon. So the first restaurants served restaurants. They served these restorative broths. Did they serve anything else or did they just serve the broths? In the beginning, the first ones, and these are in the 1760s in Paris, um, what I often say is the first restaurants are also the first health food restaurants. (laughs) So they specialized in selling foods that in the 1760s were assumed to be good for invalids. Um, So this would include the restorative broths. uh, It includes a rice pudding. Uh, it includes soft-boiled eggs, uh, and 
and it would include wine that had been provided from special purveyors to make sure it's not adulterated. There's a big problem with adulterated wine through the 18th and 19th century. And they advertised that they had water from the king's wells. So why were invalids going out to eat? Why weren't they eating these foods at home? Why did they have to go to a special place? Right, 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 right. I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would you indeed go out to eat? Especially if you're um, sick. <laughs> right. So the first advertisement I've seen for a restaurant, and it's a long, sort of two-page long piece uh, in a magazine that's, I don't know, it's sort of like time out. It's like, here are the cool things going on in Paris this week in March <laughs> 1767. And one of the things is that there's this new establishment called a restaurateur's room. Um, and the restaurateur announces, quote, that for those two week of chest to eat an evening meal, it will be pleasant to find an establishment where they can sit and have their restorative broths. So then I got to thinking about, well, what is this weakness of chest? And the crucial thing to keep in mind is that in 18th century medical language, weakness of chest is really a catch-all diagnosis that might cover things that we would today call asthma, allergies, tuberculosis, pneumonia. I mean, some of these things are terribly serious. Some of them are not so serious. But weakness of chest was also a manifestation of being sensitive of soul. So if you were somebody who was simply sensitive but wasn't also suffering from tuberculosis or pneumonia, then you might very well want to go out to have your restorative bouillon because really it's not so much fun just being sensitive by yourself. (laughs) It's You know, you want your friends to see how sensitive you are. And you can all be sensitive together over a nice bowl of this of this bouillon. Uh, this is Melissa Clark. I'm in today for Leonard Lopate, and we're finding out about the history of the restaurant on today's Please Explain. If you have a question, feel free to give us a call. We're at 212-433-9692. Or you can tweet our questions. At, at, um, we're at, at Leonard Lopate. So, okay, let's talk a little bit more about the difference between restaurants and other eating, other eateries, because it's not, I mean, before 18th century France, you certainly have a tradition of places where people can go out and get food. And, you know, there were cafes in Paris, there were, there were taverns, there were inns. Why is the restaurant different? Yes, yes. Um, and of course, even today, or perhaps especially today, we all have an internalized sense of what makes some eateries a restaurant and other places, a bar or a coffee house. So what makes a restaurant distinctive? Um, In uh, 17th or 18th century France and well before then, of course there are taverns that mainly serve alcohol and something to maybe sop up the alcohol a bit. There are inns, and what innkeepers traditionally do is there's a style of service that we've seen actually revived by some restaurateurs today called the table d'hote, the host's table. You put all the food on the table at once. It's one large table. People eat with 
strangers they've just met. Um, it can be very convivial, but you don't have much choice over what you're eating. The innkeeper says, you know, I have a leg of lamb today. And if you get there 30 minutes after everybody else who's eating at the table d'hote, you may not get any of the lamb and you're left, you know, having a big bowl of mint jelly for lunch or something. <laughs> um, so the advantage of restaurant-style service uh, for especially, remember, these sensitive, which is going to mean upper class, fastidious, yeah, the chattering classes, as I learned to call them in Britain. <laughs> um, very refined. <laughs> yeah, very refined individuals. The advantage of restaurant-style service is not just that it provides restorative bouillons, but that there are separate tables, so you don't have to talk to people you don't know. There's a printed menu from which you can pick the restorative that is best suited to your particular version of sensibility. So think about it today. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, no gluten, but I can have dairy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there are flexible meal times. You don't all have to sit down and eat dinner starting at 1 o'clock. Dinner, which is what the main meal in France was called, it was served in the middle of the day at this point. So somebody might arrive at 1.30 for their restorative bouillon. So it's a very different model of service than existed in inns or taverns. And it's a bit more like the model of service um, in a cafe. The cafes in Paris really only start in the 1690s. So this is less than 100 years after that. So we have a caller, John from New Jersey, and he wants to know why the restaurant... Um... Oh, we lost our caller. Okay, never mind, oh. but let's. that's okay Sorry. because we maybe... Oh, John is back. Okay, so John from New Jersey would like to know why the restaurant was invented. John, hello. Yes, hi. Um, hi there. Enjoy the program so far. Um, just a bit curious about the timing because um, yeah. I, I would just presume that the first restaurants would, you know, p potentially have been by um, the, either the Chinese or the Egyptians uh, thousands of years before the 17th century in France. So just... Uh, this, this may come down to what one considers a restaurant or not, but I would imagine that, you know, in those places and times, people would have paid for meals and, uh, and sat down and enjoyed them at a place other than their homes. Well, this goes to Melissa's question about the difference between a restaurant and in a coffee house. I am certainly not saying that people ate all their meals at home until March 1767 in Paris. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Remember, most people, you know, probably even today, most people don't have kitchens in their houses. They can't eat at home. All they're eating is de facto quote-unquote, takeout. Um, the difference is the style of service. And what we do know, for instance, about uh, ancient Rome is that there were public eateries, but actually they didn't tend to have tables. They were all takeout. Oh, interesting. So people, or would they stand and eat there at all? Or they, they really just took the food stalls, they just took the food, and they, would they bring it to a tavern? Um, well, there again, the, the archaeologists debate this, and I'm not a specialist <laughs> right. in ancient Rome, but what you can very clearly see are commercial establishments that have um, big uh, 
stone excavations for keeping a vat of something in it, either for keeping it hot or keeping it cold. Um, so it really seems that food was served from these big vats. Um, I think some of these places do have like little bars where you could stand and eat, but I think it was much more common to take it out, perhaps to eat in the street. Um, so, so we know that about ancient Rome for sure. Um, I'm not clear at all on the situation in Egypt um, in the ancient era. And of course, the Chinese context is a completely different one. Um, and I, I do know from my colleagues who work on Chinese history that yes, if, you know, in the early uh, decades of the last millennium, there were specialist eateries in many of the major Chinese cities. Uh, interestingly, maybe a little bit like in Japan today, they often specialized in cooking one particular dish. We're finding out about the invention of the restaurant on today's Food Friday. Please explain. My guest is Rebecca Spang, professor of history at Indiana University, Bloomington. If you have a question for her, you can give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can also write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. We're going to hear more after we take a break. Hi, I'm Melissa Clark, and I'm in today for Leonard Lopate, and we're talking to Rebecca Spang about the history of restaurants. So, Rebecca, you mentioned um, the year 1767, I think it was, right? Um, as Was that the first restaurant in Paris? It, it seems to be the first restaurant. Yes, it does. Um, very quickly, there are... A number of establishments that call themselves restorers rooms, uh, but they really only become an identifying feature of the Paris landscape after the French Revolution of 1789. And at that point, when British and other foreign travelers go to Paris and they want to see all the changes produced by the revolution, they say, oh my gosh, and there are all these restaurants. Okay, so let's talk about pre-revolutionary Paris and post-revolutionary Paris. So pre-revolutionary Paris, we have these restorative rooms where people are eating bouillon and rice pudding and soft-boiled eggs, and they're the wealthy class. And then we have the revolution. Now, I I, what's interesting to me, and I'd love you to speak about, is so this is a very elitist thing, and yet it survived post-revolution. And then is that when it changed? Is that when it became more, in a way, democratic? Or how did it change after the revolution? There's a, there's a well-established story that sees restaurants as being a very obvious result of the democratization produced by the revolution. Because that story says that the cooks that used to work in the household of the royal family and the big aristocrats, when the royal family is executed and many dukes and counts and duchesses flee the country, their cooks are put out of work, and so they open restaurants. So that was a story about democratization. And there's a little kernel of truth in that. Um, once we know, however, that there were these establishments called restorers rooms in the 1760s, we get a somewhat different picture. What happens is that already by the 1770s and the 1780s, cook caterers um, 
who had been serving what we think of as restaurant food, but at a single big table at a particular time. They adopt the style of service used in restaurants, so the individualized tables, the printed menu. You can pick what you want to have. They adopt that style of service, and they call themselves restaurateur-caterers. So uh, you can go have your restorative bouillon, and then if you're suddenly feeling much, much better, maybe you would like um, a plate of pig's feet or something. <laughs> uh, so I see. So it's kind of these – so the caterers being the traiteurs, is that – Yes, yes, the so, that's right. So you have these two traditions. You have the caterers, and yes. you have their shops, and they're bringing you the food, or they have this one table. And then you have the yes. restorative rooms where you can sit at individual tables, and you can order your, your bouillon. And then these two things are after the revolution. Is that when they came together to create the restaurant right. as we know it today? Yes, very much so. So what happens is that during the revolution, advertising, um, we only serve to the most sensitive people, is a pretty good way to get yourself hauled in front of the revolutionary <laughs> tribunal <laughs> as a bad Republican. So the restaurateurs are out there, you know, like everybody else in Paris, busy changing their sign. So the sign instead says, um, we serve all Frenchmen who love the nation. (laughs) And I mean, was there did was there actually um, you could you have a bigger class of people going to restaurants? It wasn't just for the, the elite. Well, you know, the funny thing about the elite and the restaurant is that it's always an elite based on money. Right? Yes, because uh, you had to pay for ne- it. <laughs> you had to pay for it. But there was never really a question of uh, checking somebody's genealogy <laughs> or, you know, their CV to check their education. Um, that's not what's happening. So in that sense, um, the number of people who could go to restaurants doesn't dramatically change before the revolution, after the revolution. But what happens is that all of those establishments that had been calling themselves traiteurs, caterers, they start calling themselves restaurants after the end of the revolution. And they bring in the separate tables, the menus, and that's when you get a real merging of these two traditions in the period 1795 to 1815. So tell us about what these um, 18th century and early 19th century restaurants, what did they feel like? What were they like? Were they like what we would know as a restaurant or were they very different? Ah, good question. So in some ways, um, if we think about the most famous restaurants of the very late 19th, early, uh, I'm sorry, very late 18th, early 19th century, so the Napoleonic era, sort of Jane Austen's Paris, if you will, um, what would we find? Uh, they have some of the features that we associate with the grandest Paris restaurants today, such as mirrors on almost every wall. Um, they are famous for their lighting, but of course it's all candlelight at this point. Uh, they are famous for having pyramids of fruit. And remember, this is before, uh, there's really been a globalization of food circulation. So it's quite a thing to have a pyramid of oranges in Paris. Um, one feature of restaurants in this era that's fairly distinct from what we think of today is that nearly every restaurant had a series of private rooms, um, sometimes as many as eight or ten, for uh, more intimate uh, tete-a-tete. 
So that's, a, that's something I think we don't necessarily associate with restaurants today. And I, I assume more than just eating would go on in these private rooms. Uh, more than eating certainly could go on <laughs> in those places. But also places for political conversations and for, or for business deals as well, right, I would imagine? Yes, places for business deals, uh, places uh, you know, for familial or other kinds of celebrations in the way that we would think of a private room in a restaurant today. So there's a variety of ways that these spaces can be used. And the only thing that's uniform is you pay for the space, you pay for the food, and then you can do pretty much anything you want. (laughs) I'm Melissa Clark, and I'm in today for Leonard Lopate, and we're discussing the history of the restaurant on today's Please Explain. My guest is Rebecca Spang, professor of history at Indiana University Bloomington and author of the book, The Invention of the Restaurant. So we have Steve on Twitter, and he asks about American restaurants. When did the first modern restaurant come to to this country? Did it come along oh. with you know? Did it did it come on the May? Well, I guess that was seven. That was sixteen hundred. So that was before. So when did it? What what would, do we know? What the first restaurant here was? Um, we know that in the eighteen twenties, there are already a number of establishments with French names in New York and Boston that style themselves restaurants. There is, of course, also in this country a long history of taverns and inns, and that will then develop in the course of the 20th century a whole variety of eateries that are quite distinctively American, like diners, uh, automats, uh, fast food, uh, and chain or franchise restaurants along highways. So there's a very interesting history of eating out in the United States, uh, which in some ways is closely linked to the history of transportation, to railroads, and then to the automobile. Oh, that's interesting because, in fr- you know, you think of um, thinking of transportation and food, you know, I think of m- the Michelin guides, I think of the French, yes. you know, and all those. I mean, so they're developing distinctly in different places, but yet it's the same. Although I guess the, the traditions are different. The, the food itself is very different. The food itself is very different, but the very close relationship in the 1920s and the 1930s between uh, motoring as a pastime yes. and the discovery of restaurants that, in the words of the Guide Michelin, you know, deserve a detour. Yes, That yes. is very much right, part of that culture. In the United States, amusingly enough, it's actually Duncan Hines who writes one of those first driving uh, restaurant guidebooks. Is that right? Well, They're I guess really that the name was, uh, was lent out. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, Kathy on Twitter writes, let's go back to ancient Rome for a second, that ancient ah. Rome had different categories of eateries. Inns had public and private rooms, so for meals, with okay. or without sleeping quarters. Okay, so that speaks to, so we already had this tradition yeah. of um, inns having these private rooms, uh, sort of prototype of what we would also see in Paris with these private rooms in these restaurants, yeah. um, and then with or without sleeping quarters. But nobody was sleeping in the restaurants in Paris, I'm assuming, <laughs> unless they fell asleep at the table, right? Unless they fell asleep at the table, that's right. Um, And in fact, one thing that's interesting is that uh, in the mid-19th century, after there's been another revolution in France, uh, the Ministry of Interior sends out a survey to all of the prefects, basically like the governors, and says, how 
many places where people might meet and plot revolutions uh-huh. do you have? How many cafes, how many taverns, how many restaurants do you have in your département? And interestingly, two-thirds of the prefects write back and say, oh, we have this many cafes, we have this many taverns. What are they, restaurants here? What are you talking about? This is in Paris. So there's a... <laughs> Yeah, so it really, plan. there's this big distinction. So you really had um, different eateries, different people, different audiences, and different places for them yes, all. Yes, that's right. Um, we have a question from John from the West Village. He wants to know about regulations. John, are you there? A lot. There you I'm, are. I'm wondering, uh, in, in, in France, um, when any institutions that we would recognize as regulatory ever kicked in, institutions about health or taxes, um, or if these early restaurateurs were guided closer to their previous centuries by some sort of guild medieval system where the father taught the son to run the restaurant, if it was run through that, or when it became an official business. Yeah, really interesting question. So most of the very first restaurateurs uh, happen to also be members of some of the food guilds, so members of the Traiteur, the Caterers Guild, or which in 1776 is actually merged with the Pastry Cooks and the Roast Meat Cook Guild. Um, so that's where a lot of the first restaurateurs are coming from. Then in the Revolution, of course, the guilds are abolished. There are regulations having to do with Butchery, right? you, don't, you don't set up and like butcher animals in central Paris. Um, but a lot of what we would think of as either health and safety regulations or working hour regulations are really the product of the late 19th century. You see them coming in in the 1870s and the 1880s. And that's true for, for most of Europe and the United States as well. Um, okay, I think I have um, one final question for you. Um, okay. Did restaurants help create a French national cuisine? Because, you know, before, um, really before the 17th century, what was cooked in France was really a tradition that came from, you know, from Roman times through the Middle Ages, and it was a very similar type of uh, cooking, and it changed in France in a very unique way. And did restaurants spawn that or help that, or was that something that happened in, um, with cooks in private homes? Ah, um, I think there's several parts to my answer to that question. Part of it is that a lot of what we think of as distinctively French cuisine in the way that French food was in hotel restaurants, say, in the 1950s or mm-hmm. 1960s, that has much more to do with the central place of court society, the importance of Versailles and of bringing together 10,000 aristocrats to live in one place and see what each other is eating. Um, Also the role played by uh, several generations earlier by the Queen Marie de Medici. I think actually the role that restaurants play in developing cuisine is closely tied to the existence of the printed menu. Because once upon a time, you know, who would ever read uh, the names of dishes? Only somebody reading a cookbook. And who would read a cookbook? A cook, not an upper-class person. But in restaurants, you get an entire middle class that starts reading the names of dishes and expecting that every 
pigeon à la crapaudine is going to be like the one they ordered at that other restaurant a week earlier. So you get a standardization around the standardization of the print text that is the menu. That is fascinating. We have been talking about restaurants on today's Please Explain with Rebecca Spang, professor of, the history, professor of history at Indiana University Bloomington and author of the book, The Invention of the Restaurant. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. This was really fun.